Well, good morning, everyone. Would you stand with me as we go before the text this morning? We'll be in Matthew 2, starting in verse 1, 1 through 6 this morning, the Christmas narrative according to Matthew. Before we do, we'll start off with a prayer, uh, the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6, say it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Merry Christmas again. We're so glad that you're here at Randall Church. It's a nice time of year, right? The choir is singing and the decorations are up. We're a few days away from Christmas. And we tend to, I think, in our culture, we tend to like to think of Christmas in these sort of nice, classic ways. If we listen to the songs, if we listen to sort of the the general uh, uh, feelings out there, whether or not underneath the surface it's not stress and tiredness above the surface. We try to think of Christmas in these nice, classic ways. I think our Christmas pageant last Sunday, if you were there, provided some of this nice and definitely entertaining rendition of the Christmas narrative. So in case you missed it, uh, take a look at this clip here and particularly notice the little sheep on the left. Take a look. Yep, that was our own little uh, Hannah Flannery. Uh, We appreciate that. Now, I relate to her because uh, that was me as a kid. I ruined every Christmas pageant I've ever been to. So here's a picture of me. I'm the dopey kid on the right. That's me. I'm a little cow at the time. The kid next to me is my brother. What do you think he's wearing? What does it look like? A corn. He's a corn stalk. Now, here's how it went down. We had more kids than normal volunteer to sign up for a Christmas pageant. We ran out of costumes. So in a desperate uh, uh, plea, uh, uh, the, the director asked anyone to bring any costumes they had, and somebody brought this corn outfit. I don't know of any corn in the Judea wilderness, but there, here we go. So they put my brother in this corn outfit, And they told him, they said, Brent, corn stalks don't move. So you're going to stand right over here 
and you're a corn stalk, and you're going to be a good little actor, right? And you're going to stand, and you're not going to move for the entire performance. Now, my brother was a compliant a child, so he did exactly what he was told. The night of the Christmas pageant, he stood up there, and it was hot, and it was sweaty, and beads of sweat were going down his little face, but he did not move no matter what. Now, to his older brother, he saw that as an opportunity. Because I'm a cow. And, you know, I'd like to ad-lib a little bit, you know. You'll bring out some, uh, some, some, some uh, flair in the performance, as you will. And I thought, it makes no sense for a cow to sit around next to a cornstalk and not eat him. Surely, this is what a cow would do. And so throughout the performance, I'd crawl over to my brother and begin to nudge him and push him and eat him, knowing he couldn't do anything about it. Now, of course, my mother is sitting in the front row, absolutely giving me the mother death stare every time I did it, but I paid no attention to that. I just kept on going, enjoying myself, eating my brother as, as, uh, as long as I could. And then, of course, backstage, I got it. <laughs> but for that little time, it was, it was my moment, and I used it to the best of my ability, right? But when we watch these Christmas, uh, we watch these Christmas pageants, right, we're not looking for the accuracy of the scriptures in the performance, are we? In fact, I was sitting next to uh, Tim Stewart last week, and he, he, he turned to me, and he said, you know, I get all of my theology from Christmas pageants. And I said, that's... <laughs> That's probably good, right? We're not looking for it to be super accurate. We're looking for sort of that nice, idyllic, classic Christmas scene. I think that's what we all kind of want. I think that's why, for a lot of us, it's one of our best attended services all year. They're not coming for the theological meat of the performance. But I think we also, uh, that we get this impression of this nice, wholesome scene in the songs that we sing. If we really break down some of the songs we sing, it's also true, right? We sing things like, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, I'm going to call, I'm going to call this out right now. Do we really believe that Jesus didn't cry the night he was born, he just kind of came out like angelic. Like, I don't, that's probably not what happened. But that's sort of the image we like to think of, right? That classic, like, baby in the manger, and he's not even crying, right? Or we sing silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. I don't know if we ever got Joseph, I want to hear Joseph's rendition of that night, but I don't know if calm would be a word that he would use to describe it. But right, we put out our nativity scenes and we put on our Christmas pageants and they're all well and good. I'm not, I'm not bashing that. But that's sort of the image we like, to, we like to portray. Sort of the nice, calm, no babies crying, silent night. When in reality, reality this really wasn't the case. In fact, it was a dangerous time in the world for a king to be born. You see, the Christmas story is a tale of two kings. If you have your fill in this morning, this is our first stop. The Christmas story is a tale of two kings. And the first one we read this morning is King Herod. So who is this guy and where did he come from? Well, 75 years prior to the events of Christmas, Israel was actually an independent kingdom ruled by a man named Alexander. 
Now, Alexander had two sons who fought each other for control of the kingdom once Alexander, their father, died. And so there's this part in Israel's history right before the Christmas narrative in which Israel is actually engaged in civil war between these two sons of Alexander, both vying for the throne, both looking to establish themselves as the new ruler of Israel. And when this happens, during this time of civil war, Rome enters the picture. And their empire was expanding to the east. And when they reached Judea, the Roman emperor Ptolemy was ruling. And when they got to Israel, he determined that he couldn't have this civil war going on in his eastern frontier. And so he decided to come in and take full control over, over Israel. And so in 37 BC, Ptolemy took control of this independent Jewish kingdom and turned it into a Roman state. And instead of putting a Jew in charge, gave the honor to a man named Herod. So Herod represents to the Jew the official end of their independence. And his job was to bring peace and order to the civil war-torn kingdom of Israel. And so at 20 years, at 20 years old, Herod came in with his Roman troops and it was absolutely brutal. Blood flowed like water. And it took about a month and he had Galilee totally under his foot. Essentially, overnight, he turned Israel into a peaceful providence. He was quite literally the king of the Jews in every sense of the word. Now, Herod was a tyrannical, egomania sociopath, and I'm not overstating that. His thirst for dominance and his great concern for his image, image and legacy were uh, matched by none. But he continually dealt with these two problems. He had these two problems because once he established power, once he came in and, and totally got rid of this entire civil war and just thwarted the whole thing and rose to power in Israel, he continually had these two problems that he constantly had to work on in order to maintain his power and status and control. The first one was external, because in the south was Egypt, and Egypt was constantly trying to get more land and move up into Israel. The queen of Egypt at the time was Queen Cleopatra, and Cleopatra had a boyfriend, none other than Mark Anthony, the new emperor of Rome, Herod's boss. So Herod had this queen that wanted his land and was dating his boss at the time. This is the situation. He was constantly worried that Cleopatra would get his kingdom as a Valentine's Day gift, and he was afraid that if that happened, she would kill him because she hated Herod. Can you imagine your boss's significant other gunning for your job and wanting to kill you in its place? I might be paranoid too a little bit. So he had this problem in the south with Egypt. He had this external problem, but he also had an internal problem. And that problem was the Jews themselves. He was scared to death that the Jews were going to get him. He developed such a paranoia that he went to these drastic, like I said, psychopath drastic measures in order to maintain his security, peace, and control. You can't imagine how many people that man slaughtered in the name of, quote, peace and security by the hundreds and 
thousands. He killed his sons. He killed his brothers. He killed his wife's other two sons, one of whom was the high priest at the time, whom he drowned in a swimming pool. There are stories about, the time, about a time he heard a rumor about a plot against him. So he rounded up 50 of his servants, put them on a rack, and stretched out their arms and legs until they could fast and named their co-spirators, many of whom had no idea what he was talking about. There's another story of Herod on his deathbed, and he overhears one of his servants say, when this guy dies, no one is going to mourn him. And so he rounds up his troops and he tells them to go around to the villages around uh, where he's staying and round up 70 of the most influential and beloved people in the area. He then brought them to the local arena and locked him and he ordered the troops that at the moment that he died, he was, they were to slaughter all 70 of the people inside so that on the day of his death, people would mourn and cry. This is a man who was crazy. This was a man so driven, paranoid uh, about somebody coming in and taking his throne, taking his kingdom, taking his power, his control, his dominance, that he went to these extremes in order to save it and to hold on to it. And another way that Herod was able to maintain, maintain control was through his building programs that served as a visual reminder of, the, of his greatness. Herod built on a magnificent scale, including redoing the city of Jerusalem, many enormous fortresses, an unbelievable trading post in the Mediterranean Sea, and most spectacular of all was his winter palace called the Herodian. The Herodian was Herod's winter home. We have a picture of it here. Take a look. And here's your fill-in. The Herodian was Herod's winter home, a 40-acre circular palace on the top of a hill outside of Jerusalem. And it was meant to invoke awe and fear. The idea behind it is when you walked past the Herodian, you would think to yourself, I'm never going to mess with Herod. If Herod has this much power, this much control, this much wealth, that he could build something like this on top of a mountain, well, I'm not going to mess with this guy at all. The Herodian was Herod's winter home, a 40-acre circular palace on top of a hill outside of Jerusalem meant to invoke awe and fear. Here's another picture of a modern-day uh, look at it. It's gone now. You can still go see the ruins today, but the, the structure of it is gone. But this is, this is the hill the Herodians on uh, in present day. You can, like I said, you can still go up there. But during its construction, he had his workers move hundreds and thousands of cubic meters of dirt around the sides to create this cone shape. So that cone shape you see there is not natural. He had workers, thousands and thousands of workers, carry hundreds of thousands of metric uh, meters of dirt in order to smooth those sides out into a cone shape. In fact, it was so impressive at the time that a saying actually developed around the area. They said Herod had such great vision, Herod had such strength that he can move mountains. Herod can move mountains. 
And the Circular Palace, if you, if you look at this picture, the Circular Palace, imagine, then stood an additional 80 feet above what you see here. Eight stories high, 300 feet across, as big as a football field, rising out of the top of the mountain. It could be seen from more than five miles away. The volcano-shaped palace dominated the skyline. And this photo is taken on the edge of a small village, a little less than two miles away, called Bethlehem. You see, for 40 years, King Herod lived with little opposition, restoring and maintaining peace through intimidation and violence. For 40 years, King Herod lived with little opposition, restoring and maintaining peace through intimidation and violence. And then, a few miles down the road, in the shadow of Herod, another king is born. You see, the Christmas story is a tale of two kings. But this king looked very different. You see, this king was born to two poor teenagers with a bad reputation from a bad part of town. As one of his disciples later questions, can anything good come from Nazareth? This king was born in a Bedouin village of a few hundred farmers and shepherds. This king is not born in a palace, but in an animal dwelling. We said two weeks ago that the Bible never mentions a stable. It says that there was no place in anyone's guest room, so the king was placed in a manger or an animal trough. So while it's almost certain that a manger would be in a place where the animals stayed, it's also almost certain in that culture and in that day that whatever place that Mary gave birth to Jesus was not an above-ground structure. They didn't waste above-ground structures unless they had to on animals. More likely than not, it was either under a house or even more likely in a cave. Because a lot of times you would build your house on the side of a mountainside. Bethlehem has a mountainside right there. And most of the, back then, most of the houses were built on the mountainside. And so you'd find a little cleft, little hole in the rock. And there you'd keep your animals and your mangers. If you've ever seen the movie, A Nativity Story, I think it depicts this really well. They knock on everyone's door until finally someone points to the cave next to their house. And if you've ever visited a Middle Eastern animal stable, and I've read uh, from those who have, they describe it as an overpowering experience. On the floor, typically, there's two to three feet of manure. And the ceilings are cobwebbed and soot and dirt from years of fires from the shepherds who would watch at their fields by night. And mangers weren't made of wood like we usually depict them. They were made of stone. There was no wood in that day, in that place. The king was laid in a bed as hard as a rock. You see, Christmas was ugly and dark and smelly and messy and uncomfortable. It was the lowliest place 
imaginable, literally in the dominant shadow of Herod. And there, King Jesus is born. My wife and I are actually expecting our third child. And so yesterday, we began getting ready. I was covered in, uh, in, uh, in dust and soot as I'm scraping walls, getting ready to paint uh, uh, a space for our new baby. We've got the paint stuff out. We're ready to go. We're getting ready for our baby. We've pulled down old paneling and sanded walls and got the paint supplies out. And we're getting their room ready. We're getting their clothes ready. We're getting their soft crib ready. While the king of the universe is born in a cave, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a stone animal trough. Exactly where the shepherds were on Christmas is unknown, but it is certain that they could see the Herodian. Did they find it strange to pass such a place to find a king in a manger? And we must feel that contrast this morning, friends, because while one king is restoring and maintaining peace through intimidation and violence, King Jesus orients our whole way of understanding power and peace. King Jesus reorients our whole way of understanding power and peace. In the text we read, Luke quotes Micah 5 to let Herod know that it would be Bethlehem. But if you read just a little further, you'll discover who this king really is. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel. Those origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she whom is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And he will stand, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. You see, friends, Christmas is a tale of two kings. I'd like to call the band up. Friends, we live in a world where King Herod still rules, doesn't he? He sits on the mountaintops of our world and declares that life is about winning, justifying yourself, Building a platform, getting ahead, acquiring influence, getting the last word, standing out, and maintaining security. And Christmas is the declaration, though, that peace does not come from power and force and domination, but in a manger, in a smelly sheepfold. Because King Jesus institutes a pattern, a rhythm that embraces death so that we might experience life. And if we enter this Christ pattern, if we give ourselves up, if we become least, if we lay down our lives, we will experience the peace of this new resurrected life. And Jesus doesn't simply pronounce this new pattern, but embodies it as a cold child in a cave. See, it's easy to identify and condemn the murderous Herod of history. 
but it's a lot harder to identify and condemn the Herod in our hearts. Because Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment as well. You see, Christmas is a tale of two kings, two ways to rule, two ways to bring peace, two ways to orient our lives. There are two ways to address that problem in your family. And there are two ways to deal with that annoying coworker. There are two ways to handle your finances. There are two ways to handle rush hour. There are two ways to approach your marriage. There are two ways to frame a conversation. There are two ways to label someone or something. There are two ways to deal with conflict. Friends, there are always two ways. And what the Christmas baby is asking you and is asking me is which one will you choose? Which king will you bow down to? You see, Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives with the Herodian in plain sight and says, you think Herod is the way? You think Herod brings peace? You think Herod can move mountains? If you have faith the size of mustard seed, you can do it too. And greater things than these. You see, there's a profound lesson in seeing Herod and Jesus on the same stage of history. Herod may have left the greater physical record, but what he stood for and believed in now lie in ruins. Whereas the king who was born in a Bethlehem manger lives on and his kingdom shall see no end. Because Christmas is a tale of two creeds. It may not have been a calm night, but it was definitely a holy one. Let's pray. God, as we sit a few days out from Christmas, may we embrace the pattern of life that you embodied in that manger. That peace does not come through intimidation and in awe and in fear. But peace comes when we lay down our lives so that we might experience a resurrected life that comes from it. So whether it's in our families, whether it's our coworker, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's just something inside of us that seeks control and power and to be noticed and to be appreciated and to build a platform. God, where can we come just like the Magi did and lay our gifts before you and say, God, it's all yours. And Lord, so now as we do that now in the offering, as we just as a symbolic gesture, give of ourselves and our finances and say, God, you are king and I will not seek control. I will not seek power. I will not seek uh, to use my finances in a way that'll hurt others. I lay it down before you, God. May we join the Christ pattern. And may we love you all the same and say, thank you, Jesus, for being with us, for coming for us and for showing us 
what life and life to the full really looks like. God, may we have mustard seed faith so that we can move your mountains too. So we thank